This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Brian. And we're going to talk about The Boats of the Glen Carrig, a 1907 novel by William Hope Hodgson. Mr. Jimoon, you seem to know about the publishing order slash writing order of these books. Um, yes, it was something I dug up when we were doing um, uh, The Nightland, and um, a Hodgson scholar came up with the idea that um, actually Hodgson's novels were written in the reverse order <laughs> to which they were published. Which puts right. um, the Nightland, which was published last, was actually what he wrote first. Uh, then Bloats of Glen Carrig, and so forth. So this would be instead of the third book, it would be the the second novel he wrote. And um, so having said, revisited the Nightland and both this, it's kind of I'm even more convinced now that mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that this guy chaps dating because he there is supplementary evidence from things allusions Hodgson makes about when he's talking in letters and whatnot about his writing. And um, this certainly, I think, it, this reads like um, a more mature writer than The Nightland, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more compact. I mean, it's still ferociously long and very verbiose, but it's kind of the relationships are, are clearly the work of a writer who is um, a bit wiser and a bit older in the ways of the world and more realistic and um, it, it just feels kind of tighter. You can see, having you know read a lot of authors and followed their careers, you can you get a sense of um, a writer's style and how it develops. And I'm I'm now a full convert to the idea that Nightland was his first book, which is a uh, why it's so rambling and um, um, so embarrassing so, in places with all the yeah, kissing. <laughs> it's very much a teenager. I, I I thought I was thinking exactly that that this is not uh, Hodgson uh, at his earliest. Although uh, I noticed that it still has romance in it. <laughs> at the end. Of it, he can't help but turn it into a little bit of a romance. Um, this is one of the big distinctions between reading, you know, Lovecraft and reading Hodgson is no matter what, pretty much he just has to have some sort of romance in there. And I, I was thinking there, there's no exception to this. Except uh, uh, the house on the borderland, but even that, there's the sister. <laughs> well, so you don't think there's any love between the heroes and the pigmen, right? You don't think there's any hush <laughs> fiction waiting to be written. Well, he did love his dog, but there you go, right? Yeah, but uh, not the fawning romance that, that that's in uh, the Nightland. Well, in boats, uh, she's Mary, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, of all names, you know, she's the. Uh, there's a, f- a lot of that sort of going on in here, right? Um, the Job is in there. He's he's tested. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's there's a Leviathan. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it really. F- I was reading the Wikipedia entry, and somebody said that this isn't fantasy in the normal sense. It's like science fiction. And I was thinking, actually, it's almost like if you fast forwarded this 50 years, it would be one of those. Planetary romances where they 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 crash their spaceship into an asteroid mm, or something, yes, yeah. and then they go down to one planet and this it's got these monsters on it, these these uh, aliens, 
Mm-hmm. Because the fauna and the flora are very, very alien, right? Like uh, that first set of trees that aren't trees that end with, they've got at the ends of their branches, they've got cauliflower sort of forms. And then we find out there's a, a bird in the tree that's not really a bird. It's a part of the tree. And there's a face, a human face in the tree, a woman and a man in a separate tree. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is, I, I was thinking, is this like what happened to the, the couple from the voice in the night? You know that story? Right. <laughs> right. Is that what happened to them? Especially with the mention of fungus, right? You know, right? Yeah. It, it's it's so freaky, man. Well, this is, I mean, I, I'm really, I don't always agree with uh, Lovecraft, but I thought he was really right in his assessment of the book where he says that the weird part uh, in the weird genre part, the horrific part is really the first half of the book. Yeah, yeah. And then the second half is where it becomes more of a, a romance in both senses, where you actually have love, but also it's yeah. kind of brisk adventure. You know, all right, how are we going to mm-hmm. haul the boat over the, you know, over the water, and how are we going to fight off the devil men? And um, there's a lot of technical how how to do that later on. Yeah, it becomes almost like um, parts of Lost World. You know, you know how yeah, we, it is a Lost World novel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but the Lost Continent, which is as Mr. Jim Moon points out, is not based on his novel, but it's based on a Dennis Wheatley novel. It's basically this story, except uh, you know, it's zoomed up to the present, and because it has, you know all of the essential um, ingredients of this. It, it, they even call it a lost continent at one point, I think. Um, the, 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 I'm not sure if they're talking about the island in the middle of all the, the sargasso seaweed or if they're talking about the, the seaweed itself as being a continent. But it is. It's like a... It, it, it's, he's really invented some sort of... Because everything's the same. There's like monsters in the in under the water. The seaweed's kind of alive, right? Mm-hmm. And there's giant crabs. <laughs> it's 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 it, it does become much more technical. But even when they're doing that technical stuff, you know, like uh, okay, how do we get the rope over there? And figuring that sort of uh, there's a little bit of that at the beginning as well with, with their concerns about water. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to get water, and yeah, they do similar things. Uh, their own desalination plant, and then yeah, um, and then when the when the big storm hits, you get the really detailed description of how they shelter the boats. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a real. Uh, one thing I like about the book is it's a fun mashup of kind of you know, uh, I would say Victorian, but it's really Edwardian um, science fiction with the technical details, a uh, mm-hmm. little lost land, um, almost uh, hidden race because of the devil people. Um, we don't learn about the devil guys; we just killed them. But um, and then. Oh, wait. You can infer some things, I think, uh, like sure. the fact that they they recover their dead, mm-hmm. and they don't. Um, um, uh, yeah, they, they they might not be able to see uh, nor in a normal way because they they only are attracted to movement, right? I think so. Isn't it? Isn't it say like you know as long as you can be out and exposed, but as long as they don't see you moving, they don't know you're there. I think that was what the crew of the the what was the name of the ship that that's been trapped for seven years and yet has. I was very dubious about that fresh pork that they got. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was Long Pig. 
actually. Uh, I, I had a feeling that's what happened to most of the crew. Yeah. Well, that's why the uh, captain's wife is insane, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> Kreutzfeld Jakob disease. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. Uh, uh, uh. But Yikes. But, you know, but then you get the you get real horror. I mean, um, beautifully done horror for me, the acme of the book. I mean, the especially in the first third where you get the, you know, the silent land and mm-hmm. uh, all the horror by sound and you barely see anything at all. Um, and as you said, the, the scene about the, uh, the weird angler trees with the, you know, the fake bird attached mm-hmm. to them and the faces and the, the way their arms are wrapped around them. I mean, that was, that's pretty classic horror. And you don't get this in like, you know, Edgar S. Burroughs or in Lost World or anything else. Um, and then, uh, and then it's, uh, it's, it's it's way more horrific than anything you would see in the Lost World, you know, or any of those Lost Worlds that burrows, because it 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 has this. Uh, I I like the way you you described the angler tree. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't think that's how. That's not how it's described in the book, right? That's your. They don't use the word, but that's my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's like that's the one I had fish. as well. It's kind of it's it's, it's something hideous plant it puts out decoys to 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 attract its food. I don't think it is a plant. I, it's plant shaped, right? Mm. But I, I don't get this. Uh, didn't they like press on it and it? It's it, like, it was like a, it's a fungus, like a spongy yeah. fungal horror. <laughs> it is. It's frightening. Hot you gotta have fungus. Gotta have fungus and pigs. <laughs> Just a thing. Uh, it's like a Philip K. Dick nightmare uh, sort of monster. Yeah, yeah. you really have to. Um, well, I, but, but at the same time, we leave. We don't get the full science fiction explanation. They don't sit down and take it to a lab, or you know, you don't have the uh, our narrative yeah. break it down and say, "Oh, clear, this is what's going on." You know, you don't have Van Helsing offering an elaborate, loopy, folkloric explanation. Uh, we are totally missing a scientist. When it, I, I, like, I, I do want to go back and visit those lands with a sort of a, you know, the mad scientist who said, "I told you, I told you." Yeah. Well, I was, I was thinking. I mean, one of the ref- one of the uh, resonances for me when reading the book was um, uh, Jules Verne uh, of um, uh, what's the what's the the um, lost not Lost Island. Um, the one where, mm-hmm. Dr. where Captain Nemo comes back uh, and visits them. Uh, what's it called? The Captain Mysterious Captain. Island. Mysterious, Mysterious Island. Island. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and it, it reminded me of that. You know, we have this strange island mm-hmm. to explore to figure it out. But then you've got Nemo who shows up and basically says, "Okay, you guys did half the work. Let me explain everything else." And and it's it's awesome. I mean, it's a great book. That's one of my favorites. Uh, um, but here they they they're barely surviving and they barely figure out how to uh, um, how to keep it going. And they don't explain any of this. I think I think he's he's doing something cool um in that respect. You know, I was thinking a lot about the the House on the Borderland and the way it uses the the book that they find to right. tell what is essentially the whole story, right? The whole story is not really the two guys on a hike on a fishing expedition in Ireland. It's right. they find a book, and they read the book. Um and he does a little bit of that here when when they get on that boat, that abandoned hulk, which I thought was a a really striking sort of example of of that Mary Celeste, uh, mm-hmm. what happened to the crew? Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't there? I think Mr. Jim Moon is about a, a story about a an, uh, what is it like the horror of Fang Rock or whatever it's called, a, a real version of this uh, lighthouse that that in some 
way was completely abandoned, all the food still on the table sort of story, like yeah. uh, the gold in there. But they find, remember, they find um, uh, a bunch of wrappers, uh, sample wrappers, which I thought was weird. But essentially they're the leaves of a, of a page, uh, pages of a book that are unbound, right? That mm-hmm. some feminine handwriting has told about what it's like to live on this uh, Hulk while on the outside we're getting sandpapered by <laughs> something that's <laughs> a soft chamois, <laughs> unless you get too near it. Um, and then when you go to the I- uh, the island or the land, I guess the continent, um, where, where the water is and all the horrible things that happen, and there's missing pages from that story. It reminded me that, yeah, it is kind of the same sort of technique that he's using. Mm. And then, of course, that reminds us that this is a whole book taken down uh, by a son to the main character, the father, who is uh, obviously much younger when this story is happening. So that intertextual thing that Lovecraft loves so much, that's in here too. But it's in here doubly because the inside the book that is this book, there's also another book that's all those loose sample pages, right? And well, so it, it also harks back to the granddaddy of this sort of thing, which is um, the life and strange and surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years alone on an inhabited island on the coast of America. <laughs> You've which got it was a one of the oh. great early novels, but it was written in this um, diary fashion that many people thought it was a real account. And yeah. Well, it's it's uh, absolutely, and I'm, I applaud you for having the title right in your head. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's also, uh, uh, I was just going to say that there's uh, a long tradition of this. It goes back to, uh, say, Castle of Otranto by Walpole. You know, for me, mm-hmm. kind of first Gothic text, which is a big embedded text that someone finds. Um, or you go back to Frankenstein, which is uh, four levels of embedded text, you know. Uh, we've got a uh, letters inside of which is a story inside of which is another story inside of which is another story. Um, and the craziest of this is uh, Melmoth Wanderer, which has something like 17 embedded levels. Uh, huh. And, uh, and the, you know, so it's a, it's a kind of staple of the Gothic and you see hints of it in Lovecraft when, you know, his obsession with the magical books, but also where he keeps referring to other texts and other documents. Um, so it's here but one of the fun things that that's different from House of the Borderland, uh, this is the second point, is that the texts aren't really explanatory. They're out of order. They're missing some pages, and they don't really tell you what's going on. They give you a little bit of insight, but not much. And then we move on. You know, it's a, it's a so you get that nice horror trope, and then we have this weird trope as well, where we get a little touch of what's going on, but not enough to really understand it. And then we race on into the storm. Yeah, I I also think that because it's got that that long intro and that long title, um, this this one has a long title as well. What is it? Uh, as taken down very carefully by <laughs> his son <laughs> um, James. Um, uh, I think. Well, first of all, we don't even know anything about the Glen Carrig. It's in the title, right? Glen Carrig is it's never talked about in the book, right? So, and there's boats. It's not the boat of the Glen Carrig, it's the boats. And we're with the the two boats at the beginning, 
But after that first, the mud continent or whatever it is with the, with the weird trees, uh, they get separated by a storm. And we find out that, or the narrator finds out subsequently that they are picked up by another ship and taken promptly home. And so I was thinking, like, well, why why is it structured that way? And it feels like um, it's like here's the evidence that we're not all liars. You can go out and find out that other crew, right? Mm-hmm. That's one. And they didn't have the whole story, but they got part of it. And part of the story that they've seen is just as weird as all the subsequent parts. And it's it's kind of like um, you know if you were if you if you were I don't know I'm trying to show yourself not being guilty to the cops, right? You would you would say, look, uh, my friend was there for, at the party for part of the night, um, and he saw all the same things that I saw. Uh, and so if you find him, you'll get at least part of the story confirmation of what my whole story is. And, and, and so it feels like, oh, yeah, that is kind of sort of random authentic. You know? Like, mm. why does it have two boats? Unless it's so that they can be separated, and and you know provide that backup. No, it's true. It's it's really partial. We don't get the full explanation. We you know we don't learn the bosun's name, even though he's the Ubermensch who saves them all. Yeah. Uh, you know we don't learn what their route was. Um, we don't even know what they're carrying or what they're doing out there. <laughs> and, and it seems that the narrator is like a rich man or a lord or something, right? Because he's got, as soon as he gets home, he says, okay, you're going to work on my estate. You're going to get a nice little cabin over here. Bosun, you're you're going to be held in a high position on my estate. Well, it's, it's one of those things, I think this is kind of, it's, a, it's sort of explained in um, the, the weekly slash hammer film, Lost Continent, that the idea, you know, that, you know, working boats, they always carried a cargo and took some passengers. <laughs> it's only kind of in modern days we have the idea of cruise ships where you just have, you know, um, dedicated vessels for rich holiday makers. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old days it was kind of, you know, you could pay your passage on, you know, on a ship and the ship would have a cargo and it'd be a working boat as well as a passenger vessel. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, for me, and, uh, when I first listened to this and first reading it, Years ago, it was kind of Hodgson. Give us a name for you know for Pete's sake. Uh, you know, really this, just call him the Mighty Man. You know, what's the person's <laughs> name? You know, you're mucking in. You must know his name. But when you consider it, it is meant to be this kind of um, uh, like a factual document. It's kind of actually it's very believable that someone writing this down, you know, for reasons of decorum, would not include the names. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you know, these key things, you know, sort of story details, you know, you would expect, like, you know, you know, where were they going? What they were doing? Who are they? All, you know, what are the names? Who are their parents? Where do they live? You know, what's their credit rating? All these sort of modern nitpicky things we expect in narratives, you know, wouldn't be there because you know this is a man writing his memoirs, and you know, they're his memoirs, and maybe you know, the people don't want this known. And so yeah, that's another but, authenticity thing that you mm, know you see a lot in Poe. Right where it's yeah. in the year nineteen or eighteen blank blank. Mm-hmm. Like you won't even give us the decade, right? Yeah, so that, <laughs> that comes up a lot in the eighteenth century too. That's uh, and in part it's because uh, the British novel, unlike other countries' novels, had this weird problem with being. Um, well, first the British were the last people to figure out the novel, 
every other country had the novel going back centuries mm-hmm. if not millennia. The British only got it around 1700, and when they did, uh, it was odd, but it was it was hyper realistic. Um, you know, so you had like like Jim says, you know, you've got the you have Robinson Crusoe, and people think, oh, this has got to be real. Um, you know, a book like Ma Flanders, which I really recommend. People are like, oh, this is so what a terrible person she is. You know, um, it's it, they're they're much more. They're much more realistic, and the game with reality is a lot tighter. So they put in these anonymous things. You know, the date, the year is seventeen blank blank. Oh, this is Lord B blank blank. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. This is kind of like uh, you know, the, the names have been rendered anonymous to protect the innocent. Right? Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a neat device, although it does really frustrate me as an audio narrator. Like, <laughs> how, how do you pronounce <laughs> blank blank in the year? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult. <laughs> Uh, I usually James does it as well. He he always omits the names of key yes. players and key places because supposedly you know he wrote his stories. He actually you know he wrote them to speak aloud as if to perform as if they're right. actually you know something that really happened and yeah. and hence in the print versions you just you just have lines and dashes. Right, Whereas, so I do wonder how he read them, but it was uh, my good friend Lord. <laughs> 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 Or, you know, uh, Lord Nudge. Uh, mm. yeah. He performed those on Christmas, right? For a Christmas holiday for his friends? Yes, yeah. Mm. yeah. Here. The, um, I, I, I'm really glad you said this, Jim, because it, it, it helps me out. I, I, I was reading in a very different way. I, the, the lack of proper names was, and all this background information was bugging me. And uh, I read one interpretation which said, it's because this is a novel of extremity that uh, all the social conditions collapse and all the you know people are only focusing on what it takes to survive so we're not getting what is the boson's credit rating we're not getting job's family we're not learning about you know how much our main character misses home he'd rather be there lording over his his yeoman because they don't have time they're too busy just trying to fend off the cuttlefish the giant devilfish (laughs) and they're drowning and they're running out of water and they have no food except burned weeds. And, um, I thought it was a pretty persuasive reading. It felt, um, you know, like a, like a suspense novel. Uh, and it was it's supported by the, the, what the narrator himself says when, when he gets on that ship, uh, finally after all the various attempts, you know, by Bo and, I guess it's a crossbow and, and then eventually the kite, right? Eventually he gets on that ship and there's what, four women or something like that. And one of them has children that are not her husband's children. Mm. Right. And they've had a shipboard marriage and, and she says, I hope, I hope this is not, uh, we never get any dialogue, so we we are given to understand that she is embarrassed at this fact, and he says, "No, this is completely reasonable. In fact, I applaud you." Right? Yeah. Um, and that that fits into that reading as in the in the extremity, uh, you are allowed to break the social rules that would apply back in England, such as cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I seriously, seven years they've been trapped in the weeds, <laughs> and they have. Okay, I can give them bread because you know you can make bread out of wheat. Right? You just have some grain, but they had a lot of stuff, and they mostly they had a fresh ham. Come on, <laughs> seven years of ham storage. I don't think that's possible. even if they had pigs and they had been very carefully keeping them alive. 
That's what I'm thinking. That's a hell of a lot of food. Yeah, well, they said they said that they had what was it that um, they had an enormous um, supply of stuff in stores, and when they got stuck, they they suddenly lost a whole bunch of their crew. So they were, you know, I think I think okay, that's that's good. That's like Swiss Family Robinson, right? When they have the mm-hmm. uh, the ship full of goodies right offshore, um, but that'd be good for a couple of months, but not. Yeah. No, I I was thinking that the you could keep the pigs going. Have you guys read this? Uh, Russian post-apocalyptic series Metro 2033. No, 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 no. It's it's really interesting. It's become a a spin-off computer game series, but it's um, written by a very young fellow. The idea is that nuclear war happens, and uh, one of the surviving groups lives in the metro underneath Moscow, and uh, they build a society. They can't come above ground because it's still too irradiated. Um, but they managed to build life underground, and one of the things they live on is mushrooms, um, because you, that's part of the Russian thing, but also you can grow them, and also pigs. So now I'm thinking this is like the ultimate William Hope Hodgson tribute novel. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. You're right. But it's, um, but it's not, it's not, it is partly horror and partly fantasy, because they get stalked by some weird creatures called the Dark Ones. Um, and they have to figure out how to survive. It's also Russian political satire. The uh, the different stations in the metro start developing their own political cultures, and they start feuding with each other. And you've got Soviet stations and you know, Nazi stations and Hanseatic League stations. And it's if you're interested in Russian political humor, it's a lot of fun. That's a <laughs> niche audience there. But but you know, but they have they have pigs going for a, a long time, um, and so I mean, it's possible, especially since they're on they're in daylight. Pigs will eat anything, and they've got tons of weed, right? They have, they have seaweed and... The- they have a ton of weed, but they, they have bread, wine, ham, cheese, and tobacco. So is it yeah. with cheese is made of pig's milk? I mean, what's going on here? Come on. A little, a little hard to believe there, yeah. Uh, you know, you have to wonder, maybe they've been uh, trapping other ships... <laughs> well, that see, that's that's why I love the Lost Continent. Even though that movie's got a lot of problems, uh, did you manage to see it? No, is this? Now, there's a few movies of that name. Is this the 1968 one? Yeah, the 1968. Yes. I think that if you, I, I think I tweeted this at you guys. Maybe I just tweeted it in general. If you took out the the music, you took re redo some of the lines as well, since you're taking the music out, and you put it in black and white. This would be a classic, classic movie because it's it, the the color is not great, but it feels like it should be in black and white with all the there's so many cool things happening in it that um, it's kind of like the pre the preview of because it starts off on a uh, a tramp steamer heading uh, from I think uh, some African port to uh, Caracas. And they get caught in the uh, a storm. And what's cool is uh, there's all these reasons why everybody on the ship is keeping going through the storm. The captain has a, a cargo that's explosive, that if it gets wet, it explodes. <laughs> like it's one of those potassium or what, whatever. What kind of? No, no, it's uh, one of the metals explodes when you put it in. It's lithium. Lithium is mm-hmm. it lithium mm-hmm. is one of those one of those metals that if you get it near then the ship of course gets uh, a hold by its own anchor and then there's a storm so th- there's all these sort of uh, proto disaster movies of the seventies going on and then once they get off the ship 
uh, which it, it, they've got the boats or whatever the name of that ship is, um, they they find themselves in the Weedlands, and they have this uh, great image where you see all of these ancient ships combined with modern ships. Mm. And that is briefly mentioned in our book here. But visually, you really, it's it's something you want to see. And it's sort of... Um, all right, I look forward to it. It's really cool. It's gonna. It, it, so one of the things you see is you you see. I, I think the very first scene is a marriage. Is it a marriage, Mister Jim Moon? Uh, it's, it's a, a burial. It's a burial. A burial. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you see the cow. Yeah. The uh, you know modern day white uh, officer, uh, white white jacketed officer, reading, and around him are what seem to be uh, mariners from all different times. So there's tons of conquistadors, which is mm. awesome. <laughs> and then um, in the background, there's like, you know, a modern tramp steamer. But there's also, you know, various uh, barks from previous uh, hundreds of years. And they've all been trapped on this lost continent of seaweed and sort of warring. There's all sorts of cool things going on. Mr. Jim, you, you've, you've seen this movie, right? Well, yes, I mean... Uh, it's, 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 it's I think it's Hammers. Oh, uh, good. <clears throat> well, it fit in. There's a little subgenre of a Hammer movies that deal with lost worlds. Uh, it would <laughs> fit quite nicely into those. I mean, I'm familiar yes. with nearly all the other ones of um, like when dinosaurs ruled the Earth a million years BC and that yeah. kind of thing. Whereas this one seems to have been dropped off the radar. And, um, totally. I, I'd not seen it until this week, and I was kind of like, wow, oh, really? This is, this, wow. Is a, this is a great movie. Um, I mean, because it's. Cause it's I mean, Wheatley clearly, clearly was a huge fan of Hodgson because his novel Uncharted Seas draws so heavily on Glenn Garrick. Uh, but the Hammer film sort of brings that to life really well, and um, Hammer's sort of style of storytelling, which is quite, you know, old-fashioned, two-fisted and British, does fit the Wheatley sensibility. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great because the first half, it plays out like it's almost like a noirish disaster movie. You've got all the characters and it is, it, backstories it, it, and subplots, and they've all got their own it's, little. It's tale. like um, Casablanca on a ship, mm. you know. Like there's all these, you know, castoffs who, who for whatever reason are fleeing. I think it's South Africa they're fleeing, and they they're all yeah yeah. Let's head straight into the storm, even though <laughs> because the alternative is to turn back to the port, and they're all fleeing. Well, again, mm. it's something like mysterious island where they. Uh, you know, they're, ah, yeah, that's mm, right. They go into the uh, storm, which flings them across the Pacific. And those are refugees from the Civil War, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just really, and they've got their own backstories and stuff too. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's very cool, and uh, so th- there are problems with the movie, but um, it would totally make a a great black and white noir film because it it has this sort of driven captain. That you know, we we don't see that in this book, right? All we see, we don't even know what happened to the captain. All we know is that they hit a rock, a mm. hidden rock, Love- and the only ranking officer is the bosun. And I got to tell you, that's a pretty low rank, right? That's not that high up. Yeah, well, it's true. You know, they don't they don't seem to uh, go through a lot of PTSD here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite serious. If 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 we're down to if we went from a ship down to two boats, and uh, yeah, that's a huge death toll. Uh, mm-hmm. And these guys have lost friends, and they've lost uh, 
colleagues and you know there's there's no time for them to grieve no time for survivor's guilt they just move on well one of, one of the cool things i see uh, that this book does um as well is that because it's told from the the father's point of view there's a line uh, the the father's telling the son this story and James is taking it down very carefully. We're told, <laughs> and uh, because of that, he's there's a line in there that says, um, uh, "And this is not a story for the little ones." So we never talked about it around the estate. So I'd talk with the bosun, we'd reminisce about these these adventures we had, but we never talked about this in front of the little ones because terror is not what. The children want. That's the end right? of the book. It's not for children. Yeah, it ends on that line of terror. I was really impressed by that. And of course, it would be completely horrific. But I get the sense that you know this is very. I think there's something like this is an unreliable narrator, and that he's not telling his son all the all the things. It, it gets very technical, right? So. One of the other things that Lovecraft does that is done in here is that we get a lot of description of of the effect it has on people, but not what the actual thing is, right? So we know we know as readers know what the thing rubbing on the outside of the hatches is before the reader the, before the characters do, right? Right, and uh, when we hear about the description of the weed men, there's almost no description. It's left to our imagination, mostly. And we see what it they look like by seeing how horrified everybody is. And yet, they're not as horrified as we... If, if this was a film, you would see how horrified they were a lot more, rather than he was very disturbed. <laughs> Which is... Uh, the, the line uh, that uh, sort of strikes me that way is that when the bosun heard that... Was it the the youngest member of the boat had run back to the well to get an axe, I think a hatchet or something that, that the main character had left behind. The bosun freaks out and he says, we got to go get him. You remember that? That's pretty yeah, early. Yeah. And I was just thinking like yeah. the bosun is, he is the steady man. And when everybody is panicking, we can tell that he's actually, he does a few things like he has a make work project here and there right. to try and help everybody calm down. So I, I, I think that we're supposed to know that they're, they are sort of suffering PS, PTSD or at least the effects of, of immediate horror. And yet it's very minimized. So he's, he is doing this thing where he wants to describe how horrible things are, but by, soft uh, soft pedaling it he's he's doing the opposite so it's it's very complex i would say as as it is a horror novel but it doesn't feel like one yeah well it, like it, isn't isn't there a line about like the vampire uh vampires are mentioned but um there's a even the main character he he has like something wrap around his throat and there's like sucker marks or something yeah and then later they find one of the other guys Job. uh drained mm. of blood that's job joe okay and then job's body is even uh disinterred from his yeah. his beachy grave right well i think the reference to vampires is for vampire bats um but 
Oh uh, no, I think I think it is. I, I think vampire bats are out there as well. But there was a, I'm pretty sure there's a line like these lands. Well, maybe you're right. It, it, the, it's the thing is is they are expecting sort of weird things out in, uh, on the edge of the world. Yeah, the, but they are not expecting as weird as they are here. The word uh, the word shows up only once in the book, um, and it's from the chapter with a goofy title, "The Thing That Made Search." Yeah. Um, which sounds like Google, right? But uh, <laughs> no, and it's early in chapters. Uh, for it was neither shuffling nor treading of any kind, nor yet was it the whir of a bat's wings that which it first occurred to me, knowing how vampires are said to inhabit the nights in dismal places. So that, yeah, that's why I, I that's why I thought that was a vampire bat just from that context, that sentence. Um, but I think you're right that when we move on, be either way, yeah, well, we really do get vampires later on. Um, you know, the suckers. Back in the- it, it does prime us for that, doesn't mm, it? It does. That's that's. I I just got to say, as a fan of audio theater, that um, the first part of the book, I loved all this audio horror. You know, because it's all sound. Absolutely. Mm. You know, it would make a great audio drama now that I think about it. Um, although the technical stuff later on with with all the kites and stuff, <laughs> the kites and the. Can't. Guess, but they asked for a mortar as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mortar would be great. Um, <laughs> but you know, this this reminds me of uh, uh, St. Joshi has the the great horror critic has this line where he says, um, "It's really hard to do a horror novel that works that maintains the atmosphere of weirdness," because um, he argues that horror, or at least weird, is more suited to the short form than the valid short story. <laughs> Because ultimately, it, you, you can't sustain it; it becomes a mechanical exercise, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. This reminds me of. I mean, this here, the next sentence after the passage I was quoting: "Nor yet was it a slur of a snake, but rather it seemed to us to be as though a great wet cloth were being rubbed everywhere across the floor in the bulkheads." <laughs> that is beautiful. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like that bit in um, Haunting of Hill House. Remember where yes, these, yes. Uh, our heroines in bed, and there are all those sounds around the room. You know. I mean, it's just awesome, uh, and I love that as, as as a sense of dread um, that gives a chafed look around all the ship. There, there's a lot of noise uh, used effectively. So when they are when they first go to that that first uh, mudland island and uh, the lo- land of loneliness, I guess it was called, right, they hear at night uh, sort of a ghostly calling. Yeah. Right, and. And it disturbs the shit out of them, uh, such that like they think it's some, it's not a person. And that's what also made me think of um, the captain of the Pole Star. That's the uh, the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle mm. novel that's set in in the North. Um, it's kind of which it's kind of like a pocket Moby Dick, but with a uh, a weird atmosphere to it. Oh, I didn't know that. It's a it's a cool little story. That's the that's a other thing that I like about uh, Conan Doyle was he was a ship's doctor, so uh, that's what the main character is as well, and it it almost has the uh, the kind of it it feels like he sort of did a mini version of of this, and and that's from the eighteen eighty late eighteen eighties I think, um, so I, I was thinking you know that 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 it could it could have been. Because, you know, they're both from, well, they're both in England anyways. 
uh, that Hodgson could have read that and said, you know, had that in the back of his mind. But as you pointed out, Mr. Jim, I mean, it does come from his own experiences as, you know, he was a seaman from a young man to uh, being a middle-aged man, right? Or almost middle-aged mm-hmm. man, uh, Hodgson was. But also, this also reminds me, of course, of uh, the great uh, novel by Edgar Allan Poe. Yep. The one and only. And it's the it's actually very similar to that. Um, Is that what led you to think about cannibalism? <laughs> uh, there's cannibalism in that, isn't there? Yeah, I think in Pim. There's everything in Pim. You get buried alive. <laughs> there is everything in Pim. It's true. But it, it they end up in a weird land at the end, right? right. And there's all there's all sorts of resonances that come later into other books. But it, it there's that sound. That right, that affects the people. Say, what the hell's that noise? Killer Lee, yeah, and and that is, it's like uh, we don't we dismiss visual ghosts pretty easily, but oral ghosts, you know, uh, ghosts you can hear, are harder to dismiss because they're just as you know they they're hard to capture and they can be dismissed as something else. Right, other than a ghost, mm-hmm. and so the Captain of the Pole Star has that, and I'm not sure what happens in Captain of the Pole Star. I've heard a couple different uh, audio drama interpretations, but I'm I'm not sure what Conan Doyle is saying is going on. It's very, it is very much weird fiction in the way that this is. What are those weird trees that have, you know, you know, ang- angler trees? What is going on there? We never know. We, we, if we went back, I'd be fearful to find out the answer because that might be too horrific. My sanity would be blasted. <laughs> uh, and that's how Poe ends Pym, right? Yeah. Is that we don't know what happened. Well, well, don't forget there's the hollow earth and God riding on the surface of the planet and all that. What the hell is going on in there? Uh, that That is so weird and so cool. Yeah. No, it's... And, it's like, these these guys' adventures seems rather minor compared to that, <laughs> but but this has uh, a lot of. I'm not sure why. Why do we spend so much time working on that crossbow only to have it not work? Is it because the main character is sort of like? Are we supposed to be laughing here because the main characters he comes up with this brilliant plan, they execute it, and then oh, it doesn't work. And the other guy, it comes up with a kite, and it is like works instantly. <laughs> What's the point of that? I think, it's like it's, I think I took it as kind of Hodgson kind of is giving this the situation reality rather than your, your, your conventional adventure yeah. story. Someone goes, I know, chaps, we do this. And the, yeah. they lash it together and it works straight away. It does away. feel more real. This thing. is kind of, oh, cutting plan, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work. And you have that great line of kind of, where you, you said, she says, I went below in a massive sulk. I was disappointed yeah. in myself. <laughs> uh, well, he was, trying to, he was trying to please the bosun, right, to make himself Yeah, work. yeah. Um, and the bosun cheers him on, and... Uh, mm. No, I, I I thought it was a great mechanical plot, you know, trying to because it it sounds credible at the first, and then all the mistakes make sense. Uh, yeah. Mm. Now I'll tell you what what really surprised me. I maybe my mind just doesn't work the way it should, but but when I I, I thought the island was going to be the back of a creature. Oh, well, maybe you know. <laughs> I know. I, I well, in in part because you know it's where it, it was small, 
And we describe mm. it as small. It's in the middle of this thing. We've already had big creatures. And then we get a blowhole, right? We get the, mm. that prodigious pit that's filled with water over which is a brown and hard scum. I'm like, ah, this is it. You know, this is the blowhole of a giant whale or something. Ah, it never happens. I'm so disappointed. Where is it? Well, that, is know, a, that is a classic of seafaring tales of monsters. Of um, huh? uh-huh. I mean, in the modern day, it's in Terry Gilliam's um, Adventure of Baron Munchausen. Right, right. Where they land on an island, it's actually on the back of a monstrous fish. And it shows up um, in, in science fiction. It shows up in uh, Empire Strikes Back, right, where they go to an asteroid. Yes, and yes, yes. You're right. Uh, I mean, it is from an old nautical account of, of a sea of a sea monster. But uh, just well, let's digress for a point here, okay? Didn't the Millennium Falcon fly up the anus of that creature <laughs> if it came out the mouth? I mean, how else could it have got in? Unless unless it went in the same way it came out. I think it did. I see, I assume it went in the mouth, and the creature just sat, kind of it's like a <laughs> with its mouth open, literally catching flies, and they yeah, flew in. It, and, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on because I didn't see any teeth on the way in. Famous last words. <laughs> and there's an atmosphere, right? That's that's the weird thing. Is there's some sort of atmosphere in there? So it had to have been closed off at some. point. I think that it must be a gaseous. <laughs> I think they're in its its gut. Right. They are. They start off the gut. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. But yeah, that, it, it's very nautical, isn't it? Well, it, they're literally in the whale. Yeah, in the belly of the whale. I mean, that's that's the other uh, you know biblical reference that we have here. Uh, there's so many great. Uh, I remember them so distinctly, and maybe there's only one, but uh, comic books where you know it's one of those uh, EC style comics, maybe from Marvel or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, where the guy he's, he wakes up, and he finds a light, lights it up, and there's all these. Skeletons around. And he says, "I'm in a cave." And then, of course, um, he figures it out eventually that he's inside of, and he remembers that his ship got wrecked or whatever. But the, these people are saved in the end, right? That's uh, maybe that's the um, the uh, the thing that doesn't make this that great a book. Like I I, I like this book a lot, but I love that. The the house on the borderland, right? The didn't the house like disappear and yet it's still there yeah. at the end of the uh, at the end of the book it's mm. it's disappeared and yet it's still there and and in and those the the people in that book are doomed whereas in the this is a happy ending yeah right? I'm kind of surprised by that especially compared to like Nightland you know um, yeah, yeah in the Nightland right we basically the the writer is insane right <laughs> it's all a massive delusion yeah um he's he after the death of his sweetie he went nuts and William Hope Hodgson found the document and published it as his own novel that's that's the, that's the takeaway whereas in this one uh William Hope Hodgson found this manuscript very carefully taken down um, and it's got a happy ending, and so it's, it doesn't feel like it's as full of gravitas. There's one other book of his, one other novel of his that I've not read. Um, Mr. Jim Moon, have you read it? It's called The uh, Ghost Pirates. 
No, I've not. Um, I'm quite keen to read it now because I'll complete my Hodgson reading of novels. It would. So, um, How can you go wrong with Ghost Pirates? You know, that's just. I know, mm. and I think he. Uh, when I when little reading I had done about it, I think he's doing it more. They're like, uh, it's more science fictiony than it is like you know just pure out out and out ghosts. And the more I think about it, the less I think he was a fantasist in any way because. Nothing that I've read of his, and I've read a, a few of his short stories as well as you know the, the novels. It all feels like he is very grounded in in giving some sort of explanation for everything. You know those those angler trees are some sort of natural horrible phenomenon, just like angler fish are. Right? <laughs> um, they're not. You know, spectral in the sense that they're just you know supernatural. They're they're real in a certain way, and I, I would I would be very interested to see what he does with ghosts, especially ghost pirates. Come on, <laughs> Karnaki, right? Yeah. Okay. So Karnaki is, is Karnaki a debunker? No. no sometimes, sometimes. I mean, there are, at the joke of the Karnaki stories, sometimes he does thoroughly debunk the case. Yeah, and sure. uh, other other times, uh, the Watcher in the End House is a good example. You actually have a mix of right. um, of, of both. A very, it's a very very sophisticated idea that um, a lot of people sort of you know struggle with. You know, we have a very kind of it must be this, it must be that, and you actually have a, a combination of you have a haunting that is in part real and there is a ghost, and also it is being put on by the Scooby Doo style villains. Mm -hmm. He does have his electric pentacle, which I've always wanted. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he uses that mix. He's he, again kind of like Van Helsing. He's got that mix of of science and and folklore. You know, it's a uh, um, no. It, it'd be great to reread those. Have we? Have you recorded them, Jim? Um, I've recorded them all. Um, bar the last one, which is still to come, the Hog. The Hog, which is uh, going to be an epic task. <laughs> I'll have to see. We're back to pigs again, right? Yep. <laughs> well, I'll have to. I'll That's his, he's most. He's telling in the collector. His most monstrous demon is this uber demon swine entity. <laughs> this is the guy. He's got issues. And that's his longest one as well for the Karnaki, isn't it? Yes, it's it cool. is. It is like it is. A, it is a novella, really. Um, it's a good fifty, sixty pages, if I remember rightly. Well, what is it with him and pigs? I don't know. He's, he, really, he really took against them somewhere along the line. I mean, I know, he, although he, you know, he, he went to sea a lot, he, you know, he didn't have the romance of uh, of the maritime. He actually, you know, had a, really hated the sea after his experiences, and that comes through in his fiction. And I'm assuming he must have had some bad experience with the pig somewhere that he, <laughs> there's something about them he really, he really didn't like. The same way as you know, Mr. Um, James had a phobia of spiders, and that. Keep sort of peeping through in his um, dread spectres. Yeah. Uh, oh, if yeah. they're not actually monstrous spiders, they're described as being spider-like. And <laughs> well, that's true. And then there's that beautiful description in the ash tree of uh, spiders mm. that drop off a dead body with a sound mm. like a kitten. You know, uh, <laughs> I, um, there's a computer game uh, series called Amnesia, uh, which is really <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, the first one, uh, Amnesia, The Dark Descent, is actually a really clever um, computer game. It's very scary. A lot of this is by atmospherics. There's no fighting available. You can't 
defeat anything with a sword or a gun. It's uh, it's very terrifying. But the second game, the sequel they followed up, is called uh, A Machine for Pigs. And it's this very, very odd uh, Victorian... I don't know what to call it. There's nothing really ever been like it done in computer games or uh, I think in fiction. You you wake up in a um, huge Victorian mansion and you have to figure out what's going on, why you're there. And it, it turns out that beneath this mansion is this enormous factory complex and the purpose of which isn't quite made clear until you explore it in detail. And you pick up uh, messages, all these hidden texts, right? All these gothic secondary texts from... Uh, you get them from phone calls that come in mysteriously. You get recordings. You get uh, journals that you find. And it's this elaborate mechanism designed to make one guy rich, but also to try and prevent horror from happening down the road. I, I don't want to spoil it for you because it's really disturbing, but uh, it does bring back the, uh, the, the the pig element in a huge way. Hodgson would have loved the game, I think. <laughs> or I hated it. <laughs> or I hated it, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I I I also am gonna point out um if you I I think I sent it to you guys the uh, beautiful renderings uh in famous fantastic mysteries publication of the votes of the Glenn Carrig on the cover there's the uh, the squid monster attacking uh the Hulk and the oh, yeah. I guess the bosun and crew pointing to that and then inside just gorgeous illustrations of of a few of the scenes, including the the romance at the end with the maid looking very uh, like she hasn't been surviving in the same clothes for seven years. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the, the weed men and the, the, the horrific uh, tree that we're calling the angler tree now um, <laughs> and the crossbow and, and they're just really evocative and just show like see, hearing it and seeing it, like seeing what, yeah, it's a land full of mushrooms, right? There's crabs, giant crabs, and there's seeing it is like, how the hell is this from 1907? It doesn't feel like it should be. It feels like it should be from, you know, the 1960s. Mm. It, Hodgson always seems ahead of his time to me, even though this is set in in the early 1700s, taken down in, in 1755, we're told, right? So... I, I, the sun's grown. Say so it's at least twenty years prior, seventeen thirty at least, and yet seventeenth. Uh, uh, well, it's not really seventeen thirty. It's nineteen oh seven, but it doesn't feel like nineteen oh seven. Feels much more modern, even though it has an old setting. Well, it's he tries manfully to do the uh, style, but he he keeps missing out. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, it's it's really just kind of nod to the 18th century. He doesn't really um, get the set. I mean, the vocabulary is wrong. He doesn't get the syntax right. He doesn't get the um, most of the concerns don't show up. You know, I mean, the when they get to the when they get to the ship at the end and they get worried about propriety. Yeah, now we're back in the 1700s. I don't know that works, but um, it's not. Uh, I mean, if you want to see like you know a really careful 18th century. Um, novel, someone trying to do the 18th century, you want to look at something like uh, Thomas Pynchon's Mason and Dixon, which is wonderful, you know, um, be- very moving, really funny book, um, but he does everything, including the typography, the, um, mm-hmm. or uh, John Fowles has this completely underappreciated, very strange little book called A Maggot, 
uh, which takes place in the 18th century and actually has pasted in um, slabs of 18th century newspapers. Um, it does really, really well. But it's, it's, not, it's not easy to do. I mean, um, you know, you think about something like Barry Lyndon, which is a Victorian novel trying to do an 18th century novel, or you look at Kubrick's movie, right, which is a 20th century novel of a 19th century book trying to do the 18th century, and it you know, almost manages it. But, um, you know, for Hodgson, this, that was one thing I didn't really take seriously. It, 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 felt, it felt too light, you know, um, more like a flavor than actually the, the, the meal itself. So, uh, uh, you should talk about Ahab a little bit, just because uh, you're so into it. Well, I, I I don't know too much about Ahab. I'm a big death metal fan. Um, so it looks like there's a uh, um, an epic album uh, from the German metal band Ahab. So people have actually said that Ahab is a nautical uh, doom metal band. Awesome. If if you look at metal, there's like 20 different varieties, everything from drone metal to melodic metal to uh, classic 70s metal to funereal metal. Um, and this seems like doom metal, which means it's it's darker than usual, often has themes of, 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 of decay and death more than usual. But also Viking metal, which I'm very fond of. But um, <laughs> but uh, it looks like Ahab did this uh, big album just based on the on the novel, and it seems pretty... It seems that they that they follow it closely. They have chapters um, like the last last song or last track rather uh, is uh, about uh, Mary. Uh, you know, they have a song about Job. They have one about uh, um, the island. Uh, it means some, and it, I, I don't have the whole thing yet. I'm, I'm probably going to buy it for Amazon. Uh, but the tracks I've listened to, the selections I've listened to, have been very powerful, very compelling. What, what's the significance of the cover art being? the hand going down or is it coming up out of the sea and it's, it's like a tentacle hand. Is that a weed man hand? I'm pretty sure it's a weed man hand and it looks pretty awesome. It does. It's very colorful. But, you know, it, 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 if you think about it, I, when I first saw it, I thought it summoned up something which doesn't appear here, uh, which is the, the horror of interspecies sexuality. And we, ah. we, we kind of get a hint of it when we have the, uh, um, the uh, or if you will, the oral rape of the narrator um, by the tentacle, uh, and that's that's about it. We don't get that true Victorian horror of, of miscegenation of reproduction. Um, but you know, we don't get the Innsmouth um, story here, um, and that's you know, in a sense, I was wondering about that when we when I was reading the book, and we get to the ship, uh, and there's women on board, and like, ah, I wonder, you know, do we have the Innsmouth look? Sargasso style, <laughs> but we don't. We don't. They've maintained themselves. You know, they're they're safe uh, from the devilfish. Uh, so, you know that I, that hand made me think of that. You know, mm-hmm. but but it doesn't it doesn't show up. It's just that uh, that sense. It's it's interesting to me that they 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 are intelligent, right? That they they do have strategy. They 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 recover their dead, right? Uh, Mark Turetsky was asking me. Uh, does this book have a lot of racism? I'm just so not into racism in these old public domain texts. And I, I was like, no, no, it doesn't. Uh, Hodgson doesn't seem to go into that. I don't, I've never read a Hodgson story that had racism in it. No, he doesn't. I mean, like the pig uh, in the are, are, yeah, he hates pigs or loves pigs or <laughs> so, they're, they're, one or the other. They're, uh, they're not. He's not racist. <laughs> he's dark. That's right. Um, but the weed men, I mean, the, 
are they angry at these guys? Are they just hungry? We don't know. They're not, they're not deep, deep ones. This is pre Lovecraft, but, uh, that's it. It just makes me think, you know, I'm reading, um, a Providence. Are you reading Providence, Brian? Oh, the comic book? Yeah. 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 I'm two issues in. Okay. I'm on, I'm just finished issue four. I'm just reading the commonplace sections at the back now. Mm. And, um, mm. That which are very useful and very handy to getting other sort of insights to what's going on, yeah. but uh, I love what Lovecraft, oh, what what Moore is doing uh, to Lovecraft. Everything that Lovecraft hates, he inverts and loves. Yep. Right. He turns everything inside out and says, "Look at that," and we, and we all go, "Wow, holy crap!" Um, so. You know, where, where we, uh, miscegenation, deep one horror, uh, we see it from Lovecraft's point of view as a, as a horror, right? Right. Um, from the Innsmouth point of view, it's just, it's family. Right. Right. It's love. And, yeah, there's jokes well, it's, in it's there. It's actually loving Lovecraft as well, though. That's, 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 <laughs> that's something that people always forget about the shadow over Innsmouth is the end. Is the well, end where the, where the, well, the narrator suddenly goes, you know what? I've been a monstrous oaf. I'm turning <laughs> into one of these people. And you know what? It's amazing. I get to live forever. I get mm-hmm. to have lots of sex. My God is real and under the sea. And I get to live in a palace made of coral. Rock on. Deep ones forever. <laughs> and that's how it ends. You know, well, it yes. ends on this note of cosmic awe. But I what we right. flips it at the end of, of I, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. But, but actually, this is amazing. This is another world. <laughs> Screw humanity. The deep ones, they rock. Well, that's right. But, but I think we're supposed to... We start off in sympathy with the narrator. Mm. He's disgusted by these horrible uh, fishy folk. And then he discovers one... And now we're supposed to continue being disgusted, but not with them, but with him. And we're supposed to reject his horrible thing. Because if if we just went by this one story, we could be ambivalent. But we know like he's he's not super a fan of this stuff. But also, I, know, remember, I see the nature of the um, of Innsmouth. He 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 gets what Randolph Carter never got. He gets to live in in a, in a city of sunset spires deep under the ocean. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and there is the I mean, I it's see, a love hate relationship. But but, but remember, in Lovecraft, of the, the the cosmic horror becomes the cosmic awesome. Of, yeah. You know, when when you get past a certain point of view, when you step outside the human point of view. Mm. Um, I, I, I always try, I always take the, the the more I read it, the shadow is I see the. The ending it is. is Lovecraft being positive. He's kind of this is what the hero won. People don't realize it, but that, that's that's it. It's that the language mean? chimes perfectly with all these other sort of cosmic um, enlightenment kind of the short stories and the poems of you yeah, know yeah. The, the, yeah. you know the, the Robert Olmsted of, of Innsmouth. He wins. Carter fails. He gets shut out of the city. Just has to think about it. They were capturing the white ship. Ah, screw you! Back to your lighthouse, Elton. Great. <laughs> but Om said he gets it. He gets to live the dream forever in wonder and glory with the deep ones. Okay, this is this is true. However, the residents of Innsmouth get raided by the FBI after <laughs> our main character informs on them, right? Mm. Um, and before he he fully develops into his fishy glory. Um, 
he and they end up in Guantanamo Bay style concentration camps, mm-hmm. right? Those folk. So um, when when love when Alan Moore deals with the the fallout of Lovecraft's love hate racism, right? Um, he inverts it so that yeah, concentration camps are really they're horrible, right? And Guantanamo Bay is not the solution for. Uh, problems like this, you know, uh, treat your, your ethnic, um, uh, melange better than <laughs> by throwing them in, you know, concentration camps. Uh, so yes, I'm not saying that you can't be read as a, as a, yeah, he, he, he definitely likes being on the Innsmouth swim team at the end, <laughs> like, as they call it. Okay. Okay. Three quick thoughts. First yeah. moon. That is the best thing I've heard all month. <laughs> um, I love that reading. That is terrific. Um, second, it, it it sounds like you may have found the uh, crossover between the uh, Lovecraft's horror fiction and his Dreamlands fiction. Absolutely, because mm. that's what you're describing. Sounds like in a way, you know, he's entering the we say he's living the dream. And I thought, you know, that's actually literally he's he's crossing over into uh, beyond the wall of sleep. Um, but the the third is I just got back from uh, the Necronomicon convention in uh, Providence, uh, which was awesome. And I have uh, all kind the uh, we had a Mountains of Madness ball. Um, I got a lot of like a lot of photos from that on my Flickr page. But the one um, one high point for me was listening to the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Historical Society do a radio theater performance of their play, which is a mashup of Dagon and um, Innsmouth. I've, I've been listening to it myself, the uh, CDs in the mail, but I got the download already. Isn't it? Oh, it's awesome. It's wonderful. It's it, And it's so smart because that story is not big enough or broad enough for a full radio drama. But what they've done is do uh, – they've done the Orson Welles version of – of that, uh, they've done the Orson Welles version of Dagon. It's explicit. Uh, Jim, have you heard this yet? No, I've not. No. The the, the gimmick is the uh, it's exactly as as uh, our our host has said. There's um, it's War of the Worlds, and there's explicit callouts. <laughs> like they uh, the uh, they keep returning to the radio um, orchestra that shows up in mm. War of the Worlds, um, <laughs> and the uh, but it is epic. It's like, it's like know, almost two hours long. And it's basically the deep ones uh, make a an attempt to conquer, conquer the world, and so you get a you get everything from uh, the Innsmouth. It takes us after Innsmouth, so you get the Innsmouth people who are held in. A, they make a prison break to get out, um, and we we follow them as they try and uh, you follow a raid to try and stop them. We get uh, Dagon, the island rising in the Pacific, and you think it's real, yeah, but no, 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 it's a different story, um, <laughs> and 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 the, have you gotten to the voice of the uh, deep ones yet? Jesse, I I keep falling asleep about uh, two thirds of the way through. So no, but what I do like at the very beginning, I also really like is is uh, is they they're very good at this sort of thing. Is is they start off with the actual story, right? The guys in his San Francisco. Right. Um, uh, Garrett, right, about to throw himself out the window because they're coming, they're coming, and I've run out of the drug that makes them go away. Yep. Uh, right. Um, and then they cut away from that to to the the beginnings of the. Yeah, it's it's it, it is so good as a. What amazes me about this whole series that they've done 
is that they pack so much into the length of a CD. It's always like 77 minutes. They fill up the entire CD right to the edge, right? Mm -hmm. But even though it's so relatively short, it's, you know, less than not, 77 minutes is not that long. Even though it's so short, they still manage to feel like they're not rushing. And they fill it so much so that when the dialogue's happening, it feels loose, but it really isn't. Like, you can see that they're actually packing in a lot of information. Um, so even when the narrator's stumbling over the, uh, uh, not the narrator, the newsman's stumbling over the radio report, you know, and they're talking over each other because of the lag in the radio transmission to South America or wherever it, it's happening, it still works. It, it, it's, it's not amateurish. It's so polished and professional. They know, really know what they're doing, these guys. Oh, they're they're terrific. I mean, seeing it live was really a kick, just because they had uh, everything going on. Right, you know, they had uh, they had props. They had, uh, and you you got to see them all doing all the different voices and uh, and gestures. It was it was. I mean, it was pretty dubious. Uh, I, I didn't. I you know I didn't like. I I thought, oh, why are the worlds? That has nothing to do with Dagon. But I, it, the way they've done it, it is like a sequel to Dagon, right? Have you seen the uh, newspaper they printed for it? No, I haven't got it yet. Uh, oh, I saw that they had it for sale. But uh, did you uh, get a look at it in person? Yeah, because yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's all of those stories are probably they, uh, Jim, not. What they did was they made a a, a fake newspaper um, of like you know the Weekly World News or whatever as if this happened. It's about ten pages long and it's crammed. Wow. I mean, it's wow. full newspaper aside, and they it includes the complete text of Dagon, um, but they have they. There's there's things that are in German for it. There's uh, you know different news reporters. It's it's really obsessive. Uh, they did a great job, but you know it's um, you know it it I, I was thinking of it not just because I've heard it recently, but also because it's this atmosphere of war which Hodgson evokes. You know they're at battle against the uh, against the uh, cuttlefish guys. The you know, the um, now they're called the weed men uh, mm -hmm. at one point, but they just call them the devil men. Yeah, they're they're coming out of the weeds. As they're not made of weeds, right? Right. They're they're much more like uh, more like squid men or something. So I'm not sure. Yes. They have claws or mm -hmm. and tentacles. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, 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 whatever they are, they are not. They're very alien. He's very good at evoking the alien. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Their their whole land is. It's it's so. Different. It feels like an alien planet, right? Well, I guess they sailed off into an alien planet. Isn't that what the movie The Lost Continent was trying to uh, evoke? Well, there it's it feels a little bit more like um, more like Edgar Rice Burroughs in the sense that you know the monsters are just big, right? Mm. Um, and there are, but also the monsters in that are also human monsters. There, there's this really great visual. Of uh of the king of of the lost continent who's like a young boy and his priest who has the biggest cone hat you've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> it goes like maybe six feet up above his head wow. and uh, you know they're demanding ritual sacrifice and anybody who doesn't <laughs> obey perfectly. You know, get get the job done there into the into the pit of sarlacc, <laughs> fed to the weeds through a trapdoor in the bottom really, of the boat. 
And it's really uh it 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 should be better known. There are there are problems with the movie that the soundtrack is I think overwhelming. Um and the dialogue's not always perfect, but the visuals are fantastic. And and there's so many good structural pl- you know, like just loading that ship up with with explosives, it, it's a great idea. And also, I, I mean, it, it also solves a lot of problems later on, which you think is a liability, ends up being uh, uh, something helpful. Because, you know, you want to explode things at the end of the movie. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, that has its own version of the kites, because it has the conquistadors who come and raid the uh, the survivor ship, who it's get true. over the weed in these huge, uh, like... Uh, Animal skin, hot personal hot air balloons that they they, they must have glide over from the old galleon and raid them. It's fantastic. It's, it's insane. It feels like uh, like those guys are still conquistadors, even though they've got to be like way many generations, mm. right? Like fi- they're wearing the father's armor for like <laughs> five hundred years. It's ridiculous. Well, it's <laughs> and you can never go wrong with Hammer. That's always a good, always a good choice. It's it's it's, it's really fun. It, I would love to see a remake of it, just because it 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 it, it, sh- it needs to be better known. It's a it, I'd never heard of it until I started researching this this book. Which one was it? Because it has that like, noirish touch and um, sort of quite sort of yeah. dark adult themes in the passengers' backstories. I think this is why it's kind of it's not well known as one of these kind of. Um, fun fantasy adventure monster movies, and they get wheeled out on TV a lot, kind of like, like, like she does, like a million years BC or at the Earth's yeah. core, and uh, those other from the roughly the same period that Amicus did, did, did you know, four <laughs> adaptations of Burroughs stuff. But I think this just has this has this darker, more grown-up edge, which kind of keeps it out of people just sticking it on for the kiddies because it's got a giant crab in it and a and a cyclopean oh. tentacle monster. It is is pretty scary. It's got a lot of scary elements. Mm. I I got I found it by looking up Sargasso, right? And you know the the fictional version of it and when they started and and then I I found it through that and Hodgson obviously is one of the originators. He's not the complete, you know, he's not the guy who made it uh the first time, but because it's a real thing as well, right? It's, mm. there is a place but uh, I think that a lot of our imagine like there's even like Scooby Doo sort of episodes, right? That do this sort of thing mm-hmm. in the Sargasso Sea. Um, but the ships trapped in the Sargasso Sea, you know, sort of trapped in time and never able to be freed, is a, a very evocative image uh, that is part of our cultural toolkit now. But uh, I, it made me think also, because that movie, I liked it so much, um, I, I looked up Tramp Steamers, you know, this, that's the kind of ship that it has, where they, they take passengers, but they're also cargo ships. And I was thinking, well, there's not that many movies with Tramp Steamers in them, even though I really like them. Um, so the only ones I, I could immediately think of were The Lost Continent, and uh, and there's this great part of of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're on that tramp steamer, right? Where uh, Indiana Jones is—I don't know—he's—he's he's carrying the the Ark of the Covenant back to England, New England, or wherever he works, New York, wh- where's, wherever he works. 
Indiana? I don't know. <laughs> Wherever he works, he's bringing it back, and then the Nazis come, and they say, you know, heave to, or we're going to put tor- tor- torpedoes into you. Right? And that little scene where they're carrying, you know, uh, a cargo ship is carrying passengers is a great scene. Tintin also has, I, I, it was made clear to me, yeah, Tintin also has it, and there was a Tintin movie. But Tintin's uh, drunk captain friend, Captain Had- Haddock. Uh, yeah, captain Haddock. He's he's one of those guys, uh, you know, uh, captain of a tramp steamer. But there's not a lot of other tramp steamer stories, um, and yet they are so ripe ripe for adventure, right? There should be more. <laughs> I want I want to know about more if anybody knows because <laughs> they're fun. I like I like the idea of you know they're not the navy, right? Um, no. And yet they're out there, sort of pir- dealing with pirates and uh, Sargasso seas. And well, maybe we'll find out if uh, if uh, Hodgson's Ghost Pirates have any tramp steamers for you. I, I'm looking forward to reading that. I think we should do that. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to. I haven't read it. Uh, have you guys read Andrew Norton's uh, Sargasso of Space? No, no, but I think it's it's inspired by this, isn't it? I don't know. I've never read it. Hmm. I'm intrigued by the idea now. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.